the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. And a glorious Tuesday to you, eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. Good morning. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. It is a Tuesday, as I mentioned, the 30th morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Let's not waste it. We've got a very, very big show lined up for you. It's going to be dominated by two people, none of which are me, neither of which are me. Uh, coming up in uh, half an hour, coming up in a half an hour, that's right, it's early today. The uh, longest serving member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, Peter Kersenau, will be joining me on a host of issues he has had way too much time in the air, he tells me, in recent weeks. So much so that he has been busy penning at least a half dozen, maybe more, articles for National Review. We always tell you he's a sometime columnist. That sometime is when he has time. Uh, he puts his um, incredible uh, mind to work and, and, and transitions thought to print and uh, and publishes uh, for National Review. He's got at least a half dozen articles, and we're going to talk about a few of those with him coming up at 9.35. As I said, it's early. Normally he's 10.10, but we had to make room. Peter will be joining us at 9.35 so that we can have some room at 10.35 for Heather McDonald. Heather McDonald 
is, by the way, an acquaintance and a friend of Peter Kirstenau's as well. She is also a very welcome guest on this program. Heather McDonald is uh, a best-selling author. She is a researcher. She's a journalist. She writes, among other places, for the City Journal. She is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and she has put together a very important piece that you probably don't know about. It's the corruption of medicine. I talked about it with Pete, I think, very briefly a week ago, maybe. Um, but this is enormous, and we're going to talk to her. I have a full interview scheduled with her. It's going to take some time. Uh, but her piece in the City Journal is called The Corruption of Medicine. You can find it now on my webpage, alwayswrite.us. Don't try to read it now. It's a handful. It is a very lengthy and in-depth piece in which she discusses um, how the AMA, the American, Med- American Medical Association, and the American Association of Medical Colleges um, have essentially conspired to toss merit to the wayside when it comes to creating new doctors. It's not going to be about the best and the brightest, the smartest, the most most talented, the most qualified to try to treat illness, diagnose conditions, and save lives. Nope, we don't need the smartest. We don't need the best. We don't need the brightest anymore. We need the right colors. Whatever they may be, those colors will indeed take precedent over qualifications. We've seen affirmative action in college admissions already in other places, but this is a new uh, this is new territory. This is new ground. They are literally placing diversity and equity in terms of number of minority faces in medical schools and being given residencies where they will treat actual patients, it may not be the best. It may not be the brightest. It might not be the most qualified. It might not be somebody who knows how to save your life. But if they look the part, at least in terms of the rainbow that is desired by now the medical community as well as others, that's who's going to treat you. And that's an astounding development. Astounding. So Heather McDonald has uh, done some tremendous research on this, and we'll have her for you coming up at uh, at about 10.35 this morning. So Kirsten out at 9.35, Heather McDonald at 10.35. And, of course, I welcome you whenever you can find a way to squeeze yourself in. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Now, before we do anything else, I've got a monologue that I want to share with you after we say our Pledge of Allegiance. Patriots, please rise. Face your flag if you have one. I've got two flags now that I love in my studio, uh, and I'm staring at one now that actually has the Pledge of Allegiance carved out within it. It's wonderful. Uh, so face your flag if you have one. If you don't have one, work on that for next time. If you're driving, don't worry about that fact. Just put your hand on your heart and join us. If you are a believer, <laughs> the four to five million illegal aliens who have walked across our southern border over the last year and a half of the Biden presidency are not actually walking across that southern border just because you haven't seen it with your own eyes? Well, then you are exempted from pledging your allegiance to this flag. You have no earthly interest in the truth anyway. You can take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, your favorite ex-WNBA player, now serving a nine-year Russian sentence, and your favorite pink-haired soccer player. For the rest of us, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, 
one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. As always, I kind of riff there as we walk into our Pledge of Allegiance on one of the top stories that we're going to discuss in the monologue. And yes, that is going to be the top story that I talk about right now. Our southern border, as you know, is beyond porous. It is, it is non-existent. Joe Biden invited illegal aliens across the world to cross our southern border and just tell everybody you're claiming amnesty, and then you can stay. The number of people who have crossed the border who have done that, like I said, is in the millions in just the last 18 months. That's reality. The number of gotaways who didn't bother getting stopped by or looking for someone to turn themselves into to claim asylum, who just came in and fled uh, Border Patrol, that number is unknown. But it is still, still astoundingly high, according to the agents on the ground who can indeed track these things. So... Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, did I mention that she's black and gay? She's she's black and gay. That's right. She's a black lesbian. That is a very important for the White House to let you know. It's how she was introduced to the world. She is the first black and gay press secretary in White House history. So at any rate, black and gay, Corrine Jean-Pierre was taking questions from the press pool yesterday when Fox's Peter Ducey asked her a pretty important question. The question is good. The answer, well, I'll let you be the judge. Well, that's not good. I'm going to try this one more time now, see if our connection is better. Migrants are allowed to come into this country unvaccinated, but world-class tennis players are not. Are you talking about which world-class tennis player? Novak Djokovic. So, as far, (laughs) you know, just to just since you asked about me about him, you asked me about him. So visa records are confidential under U.S. law. Uh, therefore, the U.S. government cannot uh, discuss the details of individual visa cases. Uh, due to privacy reasons, the U.S. government also does not comment on medical information of individual travelers. As it yeah, just, just to point out what this idiot is, is saying here, is if it hasn't already been across the news cycle. Novak Djokovic is the world's number one tennis player. Novak Djokovic would be coming in as the favorite, as the top seed to win the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic has told everyone he's not allowed to come because of the policy. That U.S. law says that if you are uh, unvaccinated, you can't enter the United States. You can't enter the United States. She's claiming privacy says we can't talk. There's no privacy on this matter. He has made it clear, and so has the U.S. Open. So has the state of New York. Kathy Hochul, they won't change their rules. So she's playing dumb here to pretend you know, that she can't talk about this, and it's because, well, let's remove the word playing. She's dumb here in saying that she can't talk about this. Relates to uh, the tennis, uh, the tennis play, uh, player. Look, uh, those the questions regarding vaccination requirements is, 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 I defer you to CDC. This is a CDC uh, requirement. It is not a CDC requirement. And you want to know why, you bumbling buffoon? Because the CDC doesn't make law. The CDC can make recommendations. It is up to lawmakers, then, to decide whether or not those recommendations will be implemented in some form or in all form, in their totality or in part. CDC does not make law, you idiot. For foreign nationals, uh, this is something that they decide. They uh, do not decide. 
They make recommendations. This is uh, so. This is something that is up to them. The U.S. It is not up to them. They make recommendations. U.S. Open and their participant protocols. I it is not up to the U.S. Open and their participant protocols. It's because it's in the state of New York, which is a flat-out uh, fascist state now, with respect to its ridiculous rules, continuingly ridiculous rules on COVID policy and vac- vaccination with non-vaccines with non-effective vaccines, shots that do not inoculate anyone against infection. And for the purposes of, of, of example, I point you to the first couple. Both Joe Brandon and Jill Brandon got COVID not once, but twice within two-week periods, despite being not single, not double, not triple, but quadruple vaxxed, quadruple shot. Quadruple jabbed, and they still got COVID twice. This is up to the state of New York, and it is up to Biden policy. This is not the CDC's decision to make, nor is it the U.S. Open's. Refer you to them. They have their own specific protocols as well. But so they're two different things. They're two different things. But so are, how is it two different things? Somebody unvaccinated comes over on a plane. You say that's not okay. Somebody walks into Texas or Arizona unvaccinated, they're allowed to stay. But, Why? But that's not how it works. Like we actually no. Happening. I know that that's not what you guys want to happen, but that is what what is happening. But that's not. It's not like somebody walks over and <laughs> that's not that's, that's not how. Exactly what's happening. We well, thousands of people are walking in a day. Some of them turn themselves over. Some of them are caught. Tens of thousands a week are not. That is what is happening. So. Let me just lay out what we have done. On- the, the press secretary here, before completely not answering the question and, quote, laying out what we have done, which is nothing, zero, zilch, nada, yet, they have done nothing. But before she tells you about the nothing that they have done, we need to respond to what she just said. They're not, it's not like they're just walking across the border. You see, this is the result of a presidential administration that simply abjectly refuses to go down to the border and see for themselves what it looks like. Now, we know what it looks like because there are reporters who go down to the border with cameras. There are drones that fly overhead with cameras that show Thousands and thousands of people per week doing exactly what this knothead said isn't happening. Walking across our border. Then being stopped by agents most of the time and being told, they say, I'm here to claim asylum. Okay. Because President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy has been undone by Joe Brandon. They don't have to go back across the border and wait in Mexico. They're allowed to stay here where they will never be seen again, at least until they're booking photos. That is the reality of the situation. They are walking across, but Karine Jean-Pierre doesn't know that. Why? Her boss won't go down. The vice president won't go down. And she won't watch video. She literally, I don't think she was being stupid here, which she is really, really, really good at. I think this was ignorance. There's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. Ignorance is literally not being aware of something that is real. 
I think she's legitimately, honestly, was shocked that Peter Ducey said people are just walking across the border. She thinks every border crosser is being smuggled in the back of a 150-degree semi-tractor trailer. She doesn't believe that they're walking across. I think she's truly ignorant of it because they won't show her, and she won't look. She has no intellectual curiosity, and Biden won't go down there and address the fact that all of these border crossers are indeed doing exactly that. So her stupidity notwithstanding, I think she is also ignorant. She hit the Daily Double. Under this administration, we have installed new border technology and set up joint protocols with Mexico and Guatemala. I love how she pulls out her little binder and reads every uh, uh, you know, statement that she has. It's all been prepared for her because she is about the worst at thinking on her feet that has ever occupied that podium. Ever. When she is asked questions, she that's why she it's like she, she needs a, a two wheeled hand dolly, a hand truck, uh, to bring in her cases and cases of binders to sit in front of her so that whenever she gets questions and she knows she cannot think on her feet, she has to flip to the page and start reading and reciting from the manual, which is what she's doing right now. To catch more human traffickers. We have already made over three thousand arrests in the first three months of launching an unprecedented anti smuggling campaign with regional partners. Did you notice this has nothing to do with the question she was asked? Did you also notice that the fact she's bragging about three thousand captures when there have been literally millions of of crossers? in the 18, now 19 months of the Brandon administration? We've secured record levels of funding for the Department of Homeland Security. Not the question. We've put in place dedicated immigration judges so asylum seekers can have their cases heard faster. We've... Ex- <laughs> she, in response to the crisis of millions of people crossing our border illegally and then getting phony asylum hearings, rather than telling the people what they want to hear, that these people are being turned away, she brags about processing them faster and letting them stay. She, that's not a solution to the problem. More asylum judges isn't the solution to the problem. All that does is speed up the line of individuals crossing that border, following and walking on the red carpet laid out by your boss. Expanded labor pathways, including H-2B visas, and through the Los Angeles Declaration. She literally is reading. She, 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 She does not look up and engage with the people who are asking her questions. This imbecile is literally reading a big packet of stuff that was written out for her, and I've I've heard quite about enough, to be honest with you. But let me pa- fast forward now to this. It is not that simple. It's not just that people are walking uh, across uh, across the border. We have a, we have a, a plan in place. Uh, this is not like switching the, the, the lights on, right? This is going to take a process. We are fixing a broken system that was actually left uh, by the last administration. <laughs> We had fewer border crossings and apprehensions uh, under President Trump than we have had in decades. We had a system in which somebody who really was claiming asylum for one reason or another had to stay in Mexico to have that heard because asylum rules state you stay in the first available country. You don't get to pick and choose the gold standard. She literally said out loud that they ha- it's a they have a plan in place. Number one, what's that plan? Because the person put in charge of that plan has done nothing. 
Kamala Harris said she was going down to Central American countries and Northern Triangle countries to, to uh, you know, talk about the root cause of immigration problems. Why so many people want to get out of where they are and why they want to come here, which is just so much ignorant BS. That's all she has done. There is no plan in place. There is no, it, 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 there's a great process that's underway here. We have to deal with the broken system that was given to us by the last administration. The last administration handed you the answer on a golden platter. Not a silver one, a golden platter. Just keep doing what they were doing. That was your, that was your mission here. Just do what the Trump administration was doing. Continue the wall, finish the wall, you will have order at the border, You will have control over how many people come in. You will have the ability to process asylum applications for people waiting in Mexico. That's all they had to do. And instead, you know, the president has been really clear that congressional Republicans, that extreme uh, MAGA uh, agenda that you heard him talk about last week is a threat to the rule of law. Now, for the first time in in 18 months of their presidency, they're actually referencing the rule of law. Never once have they cared about the rule of law. All right. I'm fired up. I guarantee you, Kirsten now will be too. We got a lot to discuss this morning. Stay here. He'll be joining us, by the way, after the bottom of the hour news on Always Right Radio, AM 1420. The answer. In the age of unreason, always write radio with Bob France and the answer. Always write radio on AM fourteen twenty. The answer online at alwayswrite.us. Alwayswrite.us. All right, it's a little early. If you're tuning in for your Tuesday curse, and I'll fix it ten ten. You're going to miss half of it. I told you as quickly as I could. I even put it on the web page last night. The curse and I would be on a little early. So, uh, Peter Kersenow, longest-serving member of the uh, U- uh, United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is, you know, it's funny, I introduce him as a Cleveland attorney, I introduce him as a best-selling author, and I introduce him as a sometime columnist for National Review. That sometime has become all the time, because in the last, like, five days, it seems, he has cranked out at least a half a dozen, maybe more, uh, uh, op-eds for National Review, and we're going to talk about as many of them as we can this morning. Peter Kirsten, I welcome back, my friend. Always good to have you. How are you? I'm doing great, Bob. I'm still waiting for the call from the Browns. I just want to let them know I did 225, 18 reps. My 40 time is probably not the best, but if you just give me one chance as an out pattern, I know I would catch the ball. I'm not one of these guys out here like you know some of our defensive backs who apparently aren't getting the job done. But uh, give me a call. You know, uh, Stefancic, all you guys, give me a call. I'm ready to go. All right, there you go. And you couldn't, do, couldn't any worse than that Schwartz kid did, I think, in the uh... – uh, in the yeah, I'm not going to be dropping three passes anytime yeah. in the near future, that's for yeah. sure. I didn't watch it, but I did read it, uh, and there you go. All right, Peter Kirsten, now, um, before we get into some of the columns that you have written, and uh, so many of them are extraordinarily important on matters of equity, on ma- matters of anti-racism, and matters of intolerance, and so forth, DEI, uh, I just want to get your rebuttal to President Biden, who described um, conservative Republicans, or as he likes to refer to them, MAGA Republicans or ultra-MAGA Republicans, as being... 
well, semi-fascist. And I think he, you know, was trying to be charitable by not calling all of us fully fascist. This is the same guy, by the way, who mandated that an entire population of people in his country take an experimental toxin into their body, even if they were not sick, uh, uh, at the risk of losing their jobs. This is a man who literally said, we are losing our patience. Get the jab. Um, this is just one example of what... I think people might call irony here the fact that this man practicing fascist uh, fascist tendencies and fascist orders um, is calling his subjects the fascists. I just want to give you a chance to respond to that. Well, uh, you know, this is remember where we started with um, Biden running on a campaign of uniting America. Remember that that was his theme, and that was the theme of his inaugural address, uniting America. And right now, the United States is more divided than at any time since the Civil War. The, the polls show that seventy-four percent of Americans say we are divided, including forty-three percent who say we're very divide, divided. It never came close to that in the history of the in polling history of the United States, even under the the uh, Trump administration that the media tells us was the most divisive in history, it, it was in at best in the upper 40s. This is extraordinary. But more importantly, he's writing off half of America, mm-hmm. just simply saying, you know, you guys, uh, you're fascists, you're this, that. He, he's calling Americans names, and not just any names. He's calling them vile names. It's similar to when what Hillary called us as deplorables. The left likes to call ordinary law-abiding, God-fearing, normal Americans, fascists, and all kinds of other names, deplorables. They write us off as if we don't matter, yet we are the essence of the United States of America. Without us, this country doesn't work. You know, we're in the military, we're, we're, we're in every single job ac- occupation. We don't necessarily dominate the elite classes, the chattering classes that don't get their fingernails dirty, but we dominate the rest of America. It's what made the country great, and he's writing us off, calling us fascists. He's calling for unity. It costs half, half, calls half the country fascists, and who's the fascists? He doesn't even understand what fascist is. He takes the Antifa I think, definition of fascist, and those bozos have no clue what fascism is because none of them own a dictionary. If they did, they couldn't read. The fact of the matter is, when you look at the indices of fascism, who best exemplifies it than the left? They control all of our major institutions. They have dominance in the media to instruct us as to how to think, how to talk, and everything else. And if you don't do it their way, you get uh, uh, canceled. Who, with a stroke of a pen, is going to write off nearly a trillion dollars of debt? Is that fascism or is that democracy? I think that's closer to fascism. Or uh, telling us that, uh, you know, media... And, and by the way, that, that language there, Pete, you know, writing off that debt is, is, is probably not the best language because it's, it's transferring that debt. That debt is not being yep. erased. It is just being paid by somebody else. Yep, that, that's right. You and me, we're paying it. The yeah. people who did the right thing are paying those things. This is extraordinary. Um, You know, this president has failed in every category. Every single category, he's been a failure. And then he tells us that we are fascist or semi-fascist. Extraordinary. This is one of the greatest uh, insults that we've had from a president or presidential candidate, at least since the deplorable comment. Let's put it that way. Pete, did I, uh, did I play for you last week? I can't recall the Charlie Crist, uh, on air. I don't even know how to describe it. Let's just say he gave Joe Biden an on-air massage, uh, the, the the kind of the likes of which I think I've never heard before. Did you hear that? And did I play it for you to get your reaction to it? Uh, 
no, but I think I know what you're referring to. And it's not just Charlie Crisp, but uh, what's her name, the governor of uh, New York. They're all playing from the same playbook. Uh, they they insult their constituents or hopeful constituents. Well, this, no, this, this, this wasn't. Yeah, this wasn't the same thing. Um, let me play some of this for you. And by the way, right. the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, uh, literally told if you said if you're a MAGA Republican, get out, move to Florida. We don't want you. You're not a New Yorker anyway. She not you talk about that. That's taking what Biden said about being semi-fascist and, and, and putting that on steroids. But that was different than what Chris Christ, rather than attacking uh, Republicans and and Trump supporters and MAGA MAGA Americans and so forth, he just he just uh, it, it's hard to describe what he did to and for Joe Biden in this clip. Listen, to absolutely. This. Listen, look what Joe Biden's done for our co- President Biden. Forgive me, has done for our country. He's been exceptional. Look what he's done for the world. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine? Him bringing NATO together, uh, new members to NATO. Finland, Sweden, it's, it's remarkable. The EU, I mean, what other president could have done what he's done? He's been phenomenal. Gas prices are down. Inflation is trending down. Democracy is trending up. I'm running against a guy who's against democracy. He doesn't support mail-in ballots. He doesn't support African-Americans and their right to vote. Joe Biden supports all of that. He's a good man. He's a great man. He's a great president. I can't wait for him to get down here. I need his help. I want his help. And he's, he's the best I've ever met. I know this man. He offered me his lunch when he was campaigning for me a couple of years ago down in Florida. I, don't, I only eat one meal a day. I try to stay fit. I'm an old quarterback from Wake Forest. But seriously, this man is a great man. Joe, thank God Joe Biden's the president of the United States today. Thank God for that. And President Obama before him. These are good people. Peter, take that away. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I couldn't describe. I couldn't find words. Uh, There there were some words that I could use that I can't, you know, that would revoke our license. But he said all of that live on CNN uh, the day after he won his primary for uh, to run as governor, Democratic candidate for governor in Florida. Yeah, he needs, you know, it's, it's a good thing from his perspective, that mental exams are not a precondition for running for office. Anyone who thinks that Joe Biden is a great president, thank God he's our president, has some significant issues to work through before he decides to run for office. And Charlie Crist, let's face it, he's been a chameleon his entire life. He was a Republican, then he was a Democrat, then he's something in between. Now he's a Democrat again, very liberal Democrat. He doesn't know where he stands on anything except how to get a nice tan, and his tans aren't all that great, frankly. But, you know, you can't trust somebody like him. But let's let's take a look at what he just said. Let's unpack it. That Biden has done such a great job? Yeah, he's done a great job in giving us record crime increases, record inflation, record border crossings, record drug overdoses, record gas prices. And with respect to Ukraine that he mentioned, it was right after Biden on an open mic wondered out loud whether or not we would have a response if Vladimir Putin uh, invaded Ukraine. He said, well, it depends on how much, how much of an incursion. Right after that, that was a green light. I still remember, and I bet you many of your listening audience remember where they were when that, they said that. I was working out at the time, looking at my TV while working out, and I almost dropped the weight. Jaw literally dropped open. I said, I can't believe this when he said, when he said that. That's an open invitation, and sure enough, immediately thereafter, the troops that had been arrayed along the border that I think were simply there to threaten at that time, but who knows, but Nonetheless, that clearly gave a green light. This guy is a disaster 
as president and has nothing to well yeah it does have to do with party i mean i i don't like the the uh stands that the party takes but put party aside if you were a republican libertarian democrat independent doesn't matter the results speak for themselves and they are horrible they're the worst of the modern era the worst of our lifetimes there's an argument that's the worst in history james buchanan may give him a, a you know a, a run for his money maybe a few others a, a heart a harding but I think that this, given where we are, the station of the United States today is the worst example of leadership we have seen in our lifetimes and probably throughout American history. So Charlie Crist, I think, has some some issues to work through if the, he thinks that this is our model for a politician. He does, uh, all, all, all the way through. Uh, I could not believe the superlatives. I mean, not just, hey, he's not as bad as people thought. Hey, he came in in a tough time. Hey, he had to deal with Just, he is glorious. He has done for, and by the way, that was in direct response. You heard him say, I want him down here. I need him down here. That was in direct response to numerous Democrat candidates who don't want Joe Biden anywhere near them, including Tim Ryan here in Ohio running against J.D. Vance for Portman Senate seat. Ryan's uh, campaign has said we have not asked, nor do we plan to, President Biden nor Vice President uh, Harris to come to Ohio to campaign with us. Yeah, he's trying to fool Tim Ryan as people into thinking that he is a Trump supporter. Look at his ads. He is really channeling the MAGA movement, and he is making it very clear that he's disassociating himself from Biden. That's very shrewd, if you ask me. I hope J.D. Vance, I, you know, I haven't seen too many J.D. Vance commercials in relationship to Tim Ryan commercials. He, you know, he, that, I don't know if Ryan is flush with cash. I know most of the Democrats outspend the Republicans by a significant margin. They've got all the money in the world. But we've got to correct the record here. We cannot have a replication of what has happened over the last two years by voting in more Democrats. We must get – usually I don't talk in terms of pure partisanship. I talk in terms of ideology. But we cannot have Democrats in office. The country is going downhill fast. We need to have a course correction immediately, and that includes getting the Senate and the House, and then in two years, the presidency. As Larry says, Larry Elder, we've got a country to save, and it starts here in Ohio. Got to vote no for question. J.D. Vance. And J.D., if you're listening, work harder. It's not enough. You should be out there 24-7. All due respect, work your butt off. You have to represent the United States of America and Ohio in a fashion to which we're due. Frankly, we are getting our butts handed to us by this administration. No question about that. By the way, he's up seven points in one poll, four in the other that I've seen, uh, most recent ones, which were last week. Vance is, despite Tim Ryan's massive TV presence. Uh, I think most people see exactly what's going on there. Pete, when we come back, we're going to talk about your updated screw tape letters. We're going to talk a little bit about discrimination, anti-racism. We're going to talk about intolerance. going to talk about equity. You've covered all of those in the slew of uh, uh, pieces that you put together for National Review. So we'll uh, dive into some of those as we continue on Always Right Radio. AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 9.53 now. Let's uh, continue with Peter Kersenow. Pete's going to be with us through the next half hour as well as we discuss some of the incredible work that he's done for National Review during his time in the air over the last couple or few weeks. 
So, Pete, um, you, you literally have at least six, seven uh, new pieces, uh, and it's hard to pick one of them. I'm going to go with the, the piece on anti-racism from one week ago yesterday, from last Monday, August 22nd, because we were talking about, well, President Uniter, wasn't it, he said? He, he tweeted he was going to be the unifying president. He said he was going to be the unifying president before he started calling half the country uh, fascists. Um, so let's talk about division, and let's talk about what anti-racism does. Your piece, Anti-Racism and Common Sense, of course, uh, you know, features a lot of information on what anti-racism is. Anti-racism, of course, being defined by uh, people like Ibram X. Kendi as being um, essentially racism. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. right. I, I mean, seriously, what he called, op- he said, past oppression must be responded to by present oppression, and present oppression must be responded to by future oppression, uh, all in the name of anti-racism, which, of course, divides blacks, whites, and uh, other other ethnic minorities. But go ahead and take it from there. Yeah. Uh, first of all, kudos to the engineer for the bumper music, Chambers Brothers on one side, Doors on the other. Perfect, perfect, you know. But uh, with respect to anti-racism and critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion training and all these things, these are toxic ideologies and practices. Everybody knows it, but we've been captured by this woke movement over the last number of years, which has the potential to really destroy the country. That's not an understatement. I think your listening audience understands it intuitively. What we've got here with respect to anti-racism, and you're right, it was Ibram Kendi uh, and others who've come up with this term, is discrimination or racism to fight racism. How absurd is that on its face? Unfortunately, we've so dumbed down public discourse that we're accepting this, at least nominally accepting such absurd propositions, mainly to keep our heads down and not get in trouble with the wokarati out there, which have captured major institutions. If you don't go along with this idiocy, in kind of 1984 fashion, if you don't go along with this, they will deplatform you. They will uh, uh, lobby to get you removed from your jobs. I mean, they even even after J.K. Rowling, who made her company or her publisher billions, literally billions, they try to go after her. Of course, when you're that big, you're not going to be successful. No one's going to be successful in completely eradicating her. But this is the absurdity of it. You know, I mentioned. The polls showing that 74% of the country says we are divided, and one of the principal drivers of this division is this emphasis on dividing people and counting by race. I can't think of, when we were growing up, the idea was, or the ideal was Martin Luther King Jr.'s, and I think it was perfect, uh, content of character versus color of skin. That's what we should be striving for. It makes perfect sense, common sense. This anti-racism is racism on steroids, and we're seeing the results all across the country right now. People, Peter, uh, Peter I, don't, I, I, I don't expect you to have the statistics that were in your article off the top of your head, so let me just read this from the last paragraph of this particular piece and, and hit that. In less than 20 years ago, you point out, before yep. the germination of anti-racism training, Gallup reported 74% of whites and 68% of blacks thought race relations were good. That's a huge number. By July of 2021, those numbers had cratered to 43% and 33%. So we've gone backwards, and it's not accidental, is it? No, it's not. I do think this is purposeful. Um, I used to not think that. I thought it was just stupidity, but I do think this is purposeful. And a number of very, very smart people, much smarter than I, have written about this. Uh, your next guest, uh, I heard you say that Heather's going to be on, and Heather yes. is 
perfect on this. I, I hope you talk to her about what's going on scarily in medical schools with respect to anti-racism. I mean, you thought when this was limited to kind of, you know, the social studies programs where there couldn't be much damage done, it was one thing. But when we start engaging in um, you know, this anti-racism, either at engineering schools or medical schools, we've got real problems because I don't want buildings to fall down. I don't want planes to fall out of the sky, and I don't want people to, you know, have their brains uh, operated on what should have been their foot. But that's the kind of approach we're having because of this idiotic, idiotic ideology of anti-racism, which, again, it exacerbates racial divisions. Fighting racism with racism is going to have nothing more than more racism. We have to stop it at every turn. Unfortunately, our institutions have been captured by this ridiculous ideology, and I think a lot of it is because, well, uh, there's several reasons. One is because we've been steeped in this progressive ideology at the various educational institutions for the last 30 years, but also I think it's just sheer uh, self-preservation. I think a lot of people who know better are just scared of losing their jobs. They've seen what happens to a totally. lot of people. I talk to people all the time, you know, all the time. People that uh, they know better, they are scared, they're keeping their heads down. They may not necessarily give full-throat support to this idiocy, but by the same token, by keeping their heads down and not challenging it, not saying anything, they're allowing it to flourish. Yep. We have to fight Thanks. it fight it hard. We've got a country to save. They uh, they keep their heads down until they need to look up and show their face. That I was at the training, just so you know, I'm with you. I understand. I'm yep. down with the struggle. I'm down with the cause. I was at the DEI training, which is one of the other uh, articles that you wrote about in the spirit of C.S. Lewis. We'll talk more about that as we continue. By the way, Pete said it exacerbates racism. I think it's worse than that because racism was on its way out, or at least racial divide was. Instead, it rebooted it. It rebooted it, as those statistics showed. 9.59, right back after the news with personality in 1420. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Onward into hour number two now at eight minutes past 10 o'clock. Always Right Radio on a Tuesday, 30th morning, 8th month, year of our Lord 2022. You heard Peter Kirsten our last segment bringing up Heather McDonald. Heather McDonald is uh, a fellow with the Manhattan Institute. She is uh, a best-selling author. She is a journalist and a researcher extraordinaire, and she has done the homework and the very important homework on the elimination of meritocracy in favor of race, in favor of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion when it comes to the medical field. It's one thing to have these things in a lot of other places, corporately, educationally, and in a lot of other places. But we are now talking about you walking in for perhaps life-saving treatment or perhaps to get a uh, a correct diagnosis and something that can bring you or a loved one back to health. We are now talking about you walking in and having to wonder, is this person actually the best person for this job, or did this person get this job over somebody who knows more uh, because they look the part uh, that is trying to be that is trying to be filled. So Heather McDonald done, did some incredible research. You can find that article right now. It's on the webpage, alwayswrite.us, um, and we're talking about the corruption of medicine. So that'll be coming up at the bottom of this hour at 1035. Until then, Kirsten Now does continue now with more on DEI. My dear Wormwood, 
On the matter of DEI training, you apologize to Mr. Lewis, but I don't think you have to, other than to acknowledge what you're doing here with your own version of screw tape letters. But Peter Kersenow, uh let's talk about the DEI training. I referenced it uh, going into the break. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what. Almost every major institution now requires that its employees go through DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And what they typically do is they bring in somebody who you know, frankly, made this stuff up to talk about all manner of bad things that people do, according to their template, related to race, which actually exacerbates racial division. You go to almost every corporation, major law firm, uh, uh, you know, nonprofit institution, and they require this of their employees. Most employees go there, they keep their head down, they don't say anything because they, they understand if they don't go through this or if they say something controversial, they could very well lose their jobs. Everyone gets it. And what it does is really exacerbate divisions or create divisions that weren't even there, there by yeah. focusing so much on race. As you described in one of my articles, I talked about the cratering of race relations over the last 10 years, at least the public's perception of it, thinking that the country is far more divided now than it was just 10 years ago. And a large portion of that has to do with this this training that's being foisted on significant portions of the public. It's in our schools, it's in uh, you know, public institutions, and I said in corporations and law firms. So the, the, the training itself focuses not so much on merit. Uh, when I say not, it does not focus on merit. And the article that I wrote yesterday talked about what's going on in Minnesota uh, University System, where they have this Equity 2030 program, where they're going to bring the differences in academic performance among the races uh, to even as of 2030. Now, given the fact that these differences have persisted for decades and decades, that's quite ambitious. But more importantly, the method by which they think they're going to get there is going to be completely flawed and will exacerbate the divisions. It has nothing to do with improving performance. It has everything to do with ensuring certain outcomes. In other words, changing the metrics, screwing around with um, the different standards to make sure that you have equal outcomes. Not equal opportunities, but equal outcomes, outcomes. regardless of merit, regardless of performance. Performance. And what that does is, you know, again, going back to those stats, those stats with respect to uh, race relations are, are not just out there in a vacuum. They really reflect, I think, people's attitudes. There's a real uh, uh, people are angry about what's going on. They see that certain people are being advanced, not because of merit, but because of race. Now, if you talk about, yeah, we're doing precisely what everyone should have been and rightfully complained about prior to Martin Luther King Jr. and, and going to the present. Now what we're doing is simply reversing it, and it's being enforced with a heavy handed orthodoxy that is similar to what we saw in the past going in the opposite direction. This is, it's a prescription for division, toxicity, failure, and we're going to have more failures. And unfortunately, as you described, with, uh, you know, Heather's been doing this for quite some time. She's testified a number of times before the Civil Rights Commission. She's brilliant and she's fearless. That's, that's the other thing. A lot of public intellectuals will not say certain things because they're afraid of getting canceled, quite frankly. Heather doesn't care. She thinks the truth is paramount and she also believes in the United States of America and its promise. And that promise is being thwarted by these racists who are promoting this idiotic ideology. It is hurting everybody. If you're a, a young um, black or Hispanic student, you should be furious that you're being categorized like this or that somebody... I, I always thought I didn't want 
you know, some kind of special preference because I could compete on my own merit. There's nothing more insulting than to say, I'm going to put you in that front of the class because, frankly, I don't think you can hack it. You know, th- this is, this is it, it's, it's an insult. It's something that is going, it's anti-American. It's just flat-out anti-American, and we must resist it at every turn. Now, it's a lot easier for somebody like me to resist it than it is for a pale face like you, Bob, but I would exhort all of your listeners to resist it. You're on the side of the angels, and you'd be amazed at how much support you're going to get. Again, be shrewd. I don't want you going out there and doing something that may harm you, your career, your family. Um, But nonetheless, in every fashion that we can, we must not put up with this, just like the Freedom Marchers did not put up with it back in the 1950s and 60s in Birmingham and elsewhere. We can't put up with this regardless of how it's being couched, regardless of the lies that are being told about this. The anti-racism ideology is poisonous, and more importantly, it's just flat-out stupid. Do not sign on to stupidity. Uh, Peter Kirstenau is with us, uh, kind of uh, embellishing a little bit of what he's written for National Review Online. These articles are phenomenal. Um, just do a little Google search. I'll try to get as many of them as I can listed on alwaysright.us for you. Pete, yeah, I want to talk about the equity part of uh, DEI now, or D-I-E, I like to call it, because that spells die, and that's what it does. It kills things. It does not help things. Um, but let's talk about the E part. You wrote about DEI, or excuse me, about equity I- idiocy in speaking about Minnesota. And I want to add to what you wrote with another issue. Uh, you talked about the Minnesota State Colleges and University System implementing their Equity 2030 plan. Tell us what the Equity 2030 plan is, first of all. And then second of all, can you speak to, because I believe, I don't have it in front of me now, but last week I did. I believe it was Minnesota. Um, that either one of the biggest districts in Minnesota, or yeah, I think it was district-wide, it wasn't statewide, but one of the biggest districts in Minnesota has determined that anybody who needs to, any teachers that need to be laid off uh, for whatever reason, oh, yeah. white teachers go first. Uh, if you are if you are white, you are going to be the first one on the chopping block. And, of course, that's not discriminatory at all. That certainly promotes uh, inclusion, doesn't it? Go ahead and take that, Pete. Yeah, uh, first of all, it's unlawful, flat-out unlawful, but you're seeing this throughout the country. These types of, you know, I've, I've been on, you know, the Tucker Carlson show talking about these things, and unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, as a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, I don't have enforcement authority. All I can do is highlight things, and we conduct studies and, uh, you know, make recommendations to Congress with respect to legislation, uh, give a report to the president. So I don't have the ability to go in and say, stop doing it, and, and it being um, heated. Uh, under the force of law. But what I do is, like with respect to uh, Minnesota and other places, is I point these things out. They're they're flat out unlawful. You cannot simply say, as uh, you know, there are school districts all over the place, that you're going to give preferences to somebody on the basis of race or someone is going to be harmed on the basis of race. So to lay off, to say, we're going to lay off white teachers, regardless of performance, regardless of what standards they may have to uh, uh, abide by. It has nothing to do with grading them or anything. It has to do solely with race. All you have to do, you know, the simple exercise that I bet many in your audience have been doing for a long time in their heads is, what if the races are reversed? If you just simply do that exercise and say, okay, there was a collective bargaining agreement that says if there are layoffs, regardless of economic circumstances, black teachers go first. You know immediately that's unlawful. You know immediately it's evil. It's stupid. 
Well, simply because you reverse the races or have different races doesn't mean it's any less evil or unlawful. So I've, I've sent, uh, and, and, and frankly, have been fairly successful when I do send letters to these various institutions, and sometimes I send one, you know, you know almost on a weekly basis to some offending institution. Um, I also send, you know, I copy the president and, and Congress and uh, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division that does have enforcement authority, and it gets their attention. I mean, that those it gets the recipient's attention because they don't want the full force of government to be scrutinizing them, and they also don't like to be looked uh, seen as stupid because you look really dumb in the media when people find out that you're discriminating on the basis of race in such a plain fashion, especially if you're in an academic institution. You should know better. So, you know, embarrassment is one of the best tools that we have as a society, and I try to embarrass them as much as I can because it's evil, it's unlawful, they should stop doing it. And that's what they've been doing. Minnesota's one, Wisconsin was another one where they did something like this. Uh, you know, in Seattle, I, I can't even go through the entire litany where they try under wokeism to do reverse racism, basically. The anti-racism is discriminatory. It is wrong. We should fight it at every turn. Peter, let's uh, turn to one more of your articles, uh, going back to, again, your screw tape uh, update, if you will. Uh, <laughs> My dear Wormwood, on the matter of intolerance, you address the issue of cancellation uh, a bit in this particular letter. Um, and I want to maybe steer this toward the Kathy Hochul part you and I talked about briefly last half hour, uh, in which she basically is telling 5.4 million New York Republicans, get out. Go to Florida where you'll be happier, or however she phrased that, you'll fit right in there. You are not New Yorkers. Uh, and this, of course, is because people disagree with her. They disagree with her on virtually everything. Uh, but I, the last time I checked, that's one of the things that made our republic great, is that we can have different points of view, different ideologies, and that we can work legislatively and reasonably and civilly with one another until we come up with solutions that are satisfactory for, for the, the majority. But they don't want solutions anymore. There is no tolerance for any dissenting point of view. She literally said Get out. I'm astounded by that, Pete. Right. You know, the folks who preach loudest about tolerance very often reveal themselves to be the most intolerant folks around. And we see it constantly. And here's another example. We talked earlier about Biden. We talked about Christ. They don't even want your vote. They want you to get out of Dodge, literally get out of Dodge. They don't want you anywhere around. You know, where's the tolerance there? Uh, it's only tolerance that goes in their preferred direction. That's not tolerance. You know, they talk about fascism. That's fascism. When they want you out of the jurisdiction, that's fascism, unless you hew to their version of what they consider to be democracy or right to think. Um, these people, among other things, and I hate to be pejorative, as pejor I say this too often. Yeah, sometimes I am pejorative because, unfortunately, they give me no other recourse. But these Agreed. are, they, frankly, these are not the brightest bulbs around. Now, they've good for them. They got elected, you know, they've advanced far in their lives. Uh, it's kind of head scratching. You wonder, you know, where's the fairness in it all when you have somebody like this that uh, clearly has been, at least in terms of conventional measures, successful. But these are not bright people. They're not very competent people. They're not very talented people. They are very fortunate people that, uh, you know, the, the talk about tolerance, that the voting public is tolerant of them. But you know, uh, that's to our shame that we have these folks running large states, telling us what to do, running the country. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, going back to the, the – and by the way, let me just, as an aside, an, an apology to Mr. Lewis is, is I, to take on the, 
mantle or try to write as C.S. Lewis is a fool's errand. Um, he's such a wonderful, was such a, a, a wonderful writer and apologist. Um, uh, but I thought it was one of the best vehicles, as the original screw tapes letters show, one of the best vehicles for revealing the truth, revealing falsity uh, very clearly. And uh, so I, I try to adopt this for, and I've been doing it for a while for National Review, whenever I have time, right. to adopt this mechanism to reveal how, how ridiculous some commonly held propositions, at least among our elites, are. And so, you know, I'm going to try to do whenever I have time, like you said. I was on a plane, so uh, I, you know, I finished my work, so I just started scribbling these things and then put them up on, on NRO. I have limited time, but as uh, one person said, you know, I don't want to die with the music still left in me. I figure every free moment I have, I want to contribute to my family, to society, to my God, and that means i got to work my butt off and try to do something that's useful. So screw tape letters are uh, an attempt to be somewhat useful in a somewhat entertaining fashion, but also to send a message that uh, we Americans, we uh, deplorables out here, are not going to take this stuff, and I may say that advisedly, from our so-called elites anymore. We know the greatness of this country. We know the, what's uh, in the hearts of our people. Are there bad apples out there? Sure enough, but we've made tremendous strides that are in jeopardy of being reversed by our elites. Victor Davis Hanson, and I'm on a little bit, on, I'm going on kind of on a screed here, but Victor Davis Hanson lately has been writing about um, our elites and how bad they are in, in the entire American history, we have not had elites that are so incompetent, so uh, I can't even think of the adjectives he's used, but we are being led, and it's not confined to party or ideology necessarily, but we have been uh, training people in very poor ways. We've been sending them to colleges that haven't been been teaching people. Our schools aren't teaching them the way, the fundamentals that we have in the past, and frankly, our society, whether it be, you know, uh, popular media uh, decline in relig religiosity, so on and so forth. I think our society has been uh, generating a um, an elite class that doesn't rise to the level of where what we deserve. Put it that way. And so our elites are taking us down a really troublesome road in almost every avenue of our of our society. We are seeing declines, and I, I think C.S. Lewis was best able to highlight those things. If he were alive, alive today, he'd have a field day. Yeah, and Pete, by the way, rest assured, there are plenty of people, I guarantee you, in this listening audience, not to mention your reading audience, uh, who take a lot of value from the things that you offer. So you will, you will go to your rest eventually knowing, or at least you should, knowing that that is what you have left. Pete, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about one other story. This doesn't have to do with any of your articles, but it's just uh, because of part of the FBI story you and I discussed on Friday. <clears throat> Uh, a top FBI agent, Timothy Thibault, uh, the assistant, assistant special agent in charge of the Hunter Biden, uh, or excuse me, uh, has resigned, resigned his post after the scrutiny over allegations that he helped shield Hunter Biden from criminal investigations into that Joe Biden slash Hunter Biden laptop uh, from 2020. What do you make of the fact that the FBI, which is under intense scrutiny for a whole host of things you and I have discussed ad nauseum, that the special agent in charge uh, is stepping down? Yeah, my fear is that he's the sacrificial lamb because he's not the only guy. This is a rot that permeates. He's a big one, though. 25-year veteran special agent yep. in charge. Yeah, he's a big fish to be, or a sure. big lamb, Don't rather, to be sacrificed. 
Yeah, I don't want to diminish it. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that that happened, mm-hmm. but uh, the rot is wide and deep. It's clearly the case. Uh, you know, and, and we've talked about this before. Obviously, FBI is a large organization. This doesn't mean everybody in the FBI, but at the leadership levels, uh, you know, we've seen Comey and Strzok and Page, McCabe, and all these folks, and no one has been held accountable. And this guy, yeah, he's at the upper levels, but he's not at the level of a McCabe or a Comey. Right. Uh, this level, you don't do the kind of things that happened in the 2016, 2020 elections. You don't. The FBI couldn't do those things. The false affidavits, the the manipulation of affidavits, the lies to the FISA courts, all of these things, the surveillance, the uh, holding on to the Hunter laptop, all those things. You cannot do that at the Cleveland field office level. That has to come from the very top, and those people are still there. And even if they don't have men's rights, they, they, they didn't have actual conscious knowledge of what was happening, it happened on their watch. And in almost every other accountable organization, if it happens on your watch, even though you weren't explicitly involved, you bear the consequences. You bear the responsibility. And we haven't seen that as of yet. We see this one guy, and I hope that's not the only one, because I've got a lot of questions, as I'm sure Chuck Grassley clearly does, and certain others. Jim Jordan, I'm sure, when you talk to him this week, uh, if you haven't already done so, I, I, I can't recall, but yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure he's going to have questions of all of these actors. I'd li- I really like to know, with respect to um, Christopher Ray. Where has he been? You know, he was supposed to be the replacement for, for Comey and therefore kind of clean up the mess. And it's a deep and wide mess. But it seems to me it's persisted. And very few, you know, we know of this guy, this one individual has been held accountable, but, but few others. I, I'm still mystified as to how you have a guy like a Peter Strzok, who apparently has a big time gig with, I believe it's MSNBC or one of them. Uh, he's, you know, going out there just with impunity, saying all kinds of stuff when, you know, these guys have been yeah. in middle of the biggest political scandals in American history. Yeah, clearly not enough heads have rolled, particularly those in big, giant corner offices. I agree wholeheartedly, but Thibault being uh, sent packing is, uh, is perhaps a start. Peter Kersenow, that's where we'll have to end it for today. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Bob. We'll get a time out here. Bottom of the hour news coming your way. Then a conversation with Heather McDonald that you simply must hear about the corruption of medicine in favor of inclusion, equity, and diversity as opposed to quality and competence. That story is coming up after the news. Always Right Radio. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France. All right, joining us this morning, as promised, is um, just a brilliant, brilliant researcher and journalist. She uh, belongs to the Manhattan Institute. She belongs to the City Journal. Uh, her latest piece is one of the most important pieces I've ever read. I've talked to Heather McDonald in the past about matters involving police statistics and, and involving uh, shootings of unarmed blacks and some of the other uh, statistics that are out there that are completely misleading the public. This might be the most important work that I've read of hers, and I probably haven't read enough. But we are going to talk about the the ranking and the valuation, essentially, of race and ethnicity over merit when it comes to medicine. The corruption of medicine is a terrific piece that Heather has researched and written for the City Journal. And she joins us now to give us some of the highlights and, quite frankly, the lowlights of of what this means uh, here on AM 1420, The Answer. Heather McDonald, thank you for coming back on. How are you this morning? Great, Bob. Thank you for having me on and for that generous introduction. I greatly appreciate it. 
I watched you on Tucker Carlson. Uh, they only give you about a minute and a half, two minutes to talk. And I said, oh, my goodness, I've got to hear more and I've got to read more. That's when I went and I read the article twice. Uh, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of very important stuff. And I want to give you an opportunity to explain. You know, when we see diversity, inclusion, and equity, I always put them in that order because that spells die, which is essentially what they are making happen to so many of these, to our institutions. Uh, but diversity, inclusion, and equity, Heather, in some fields is an annoyance. It's unfair. It's discriminatory. When you bring that to the medical field, where you start rating people, including admissions into medical schools, including um, uh, MCAT scoring, all of these kinds of things in the medical field, now it's not an annoyance. Now it's not just discriminatory and unfair. Now it is a threat to people's lives. When race trumps, uh, pardon that word, when race trumps uh, merit and ability uh, to heal and to diagnose and to solve and to treat. Now we have a serious problem here. Can you tell me how you first became aware of what the AMA and uh, uh, the other health organizations are doing? Well, you've stated the problem perfectly, uh, Bob. This is utterly appalling that the leaders of the medical profession, the leaders of medical schools, are participating in this massive fiction, which is that the medical profession is shot through with systemic racism, and that the only reason that there are not proportional numbers of Blacks and Hispanics on medical school faculties, in cancer research labs, in medical school student bodies, is somehow racism on the part of doctors and deans and admissions officers and 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 uh, heads of, of, of cancer research laboratories, a total fiction, uh, and they are willing to allow their profession to be besmirched with a lie and to lower standards in a way that can only increase the risk to patients of medical malpractice, of not getting the medical care they, they deserve, and will slow down the pace of medical progress because every every research lab in the country now is having to prove to the federal government to write these long diversity statements about how its work will help to promote diversity in STEM as opposed to describing to the to the federal science funding agencies like the National Institute of Health or the National Science Foundation why their research is critical to trying to find the answer to Alzheimer's disease or, or breast cancer. I became aware of this uh, when doctors were reaching out to me and saying, you've got to look at what's happening in our field. Uh, we are wasting enormous amounts of time filling out these statements. Cancer research is being just dragged down by reams of red tape you know, looking for phony diversity statistics. And uh, the best students are not getting into the law schools of their choice because they're the wrong uh, race and sex. And so I looked into it and I found that the American Medical Association, you know, if you want a, a barometer, Bob, of how radically American culture has changed in less than a century, just look at the AMA. In the 1950s, the AMA was the very symbol of solid conservative Midwestern values. You know, it, that and the American Bar Association, they both stood for establishment values, for 
merit, accomplishment. Now, if you read publications coming out of the AMA, you'd think you'd, you were reading something coming out of a black studies department at any university or college in the country. The AMA is calling on doctors to fight white supremacy, to, to fight heteronormativity, to take into account their own white privilege. The American Association of Medical Colleges, which sets standards for what medical students should know in order to get licensed, uh, it's demanding that medical schools mandate courses in white privilege. Well, you know, as you know, Bob, learning is zero sum. Every minute that a medical student spends trying to learn how to regurgitate these shallow, specious racial justice bromides is a minute not spent learning how to save you when you have a near fatal heart attack and you show up in an emergency room or how to bring you back from a near fatal car crash. But our, our medical school leaders are willing to sacrifice real medical knowledge for the sake of this phony racial justice crusade. We are talking with Heather McDonald in Getting an Education on the uh, Corruption of Medicine, a terrific piece that she wrote for the City Journal. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder, and maybe this is kind of chicken and egg as to which one drove the other, but for the last few years, certainly since George Floyd in 2020, but I guess going all the way back to, you know, Tr Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and many of the things that you've covered We've heard governors and mayors and other left wing and some legislators saying that racism is a public health emergency. So when they call it a public health emergency, is this medical schools and the AMA responding to that and saying, yeah, it's true. We have to dismantle racism at the, uh, you know, at the medical school level in order to be able to treat it as a disease, that kind of thing. Or did maybe it wasn't the other way around. Is that maybe where they got, uh, got the language that they were using from the uh, uh, medical schools and the AMA? Well, that's a great, uh, great little historical uh, recollection there, Bob, and I frankly can't tell you which came first. We also had several years ago the concept of toxic racism, which is very much um, what's driving thinking in in um, medical schools now and medical practices, which means that uh, blacks are not going to get the real help that they need. It is now taboo to suggest that racial health disparities, and they do exist, blacks do have a shorter expected lifespan, it is taboo to suggest that the most essential causes of that may be behavioral issues, whether it's lack of, you know, not, not getting exercise, much higher rates of diabetes, uh, you talk to inner city cultural. doctors. Cultural, cultural in addition to behavioral, right? Right, right. You talk to inner city doctors and they will tell you it is very hard to get their patients to show up for follow-up appointments. Expectant mothers are not following uh, prenatal care instructions. They're not showing up for prenatal care appointments. Uh, you may not talk about those behavioral issues, and you mentioned cultural. Of course, if, if Blacks are being told constantly that the medical profession is racist, uh, they're not going to trust it, and they're not going to follow uh, 
you know, the instructions and they're going to be more, uh, you know, inattentive to helpful instructions from their doctor and, and taking their, their medicine and whatnot. So you're not allowed to talk about behavior. You're not allowed to say, well, you know, you're wildly over, overweight. Let's, let's think about getting more exercise and, and working on a diet. That will brand you as a racist. Instead, the only thing you're allowed to say in medical schools now is it's somehow this phantom miasma of, of systemic racism or, or toxic racism. And the public health emergency, you know, we saw that as well with the one of the endless numbers of double standards during the COVID hysteria, where the public health profession, after telling us that we dare not go outside to jog or, or walk or, or play tennis or swim, uh, because that would all kill us being outdoors. Uh, nevertheless, we learned that it was fine to engage in violent protest about the George Floyd death uh, outdoors in highly comp compact spaces because public health uh, measures and emergencies required recognizing systemic racism. So I think this was all kind of co-happening. Uh, co the, the idea that racism is the defining characteristic of America has been dominant in the university systems for decades, and it has worked its way into all of the STEM fields, that is the science, technology, engineering, and medical fields, uh, and, and certainly into medicine. So it's all, it's all this, this weird mindset that has been embraced by every elite institution in America. Yeah, you know, if there's one element uh, of academia you would think that maybe might be exempted from from racism as being the driving factor, you would think it would be the sciences. But as we are seeing right now play out, science doesn't mean what science once did. And in fact, we can talk a little bit about, you know, the gender studies aspect that is also invading uh, decision making on what, uh, you know, who gets into medical schools and what kind of uh, what kind of. Uh, things that they need to be able to display before they can go out and work in a residency. All right. We'll be back with part two of my interview, an important interview with Heather McDonald right after this. Always right. Radio AM 1420. The answer. You spend some time in your article, Heather McDonald, um, talking about the step one test and talking about the comparison uh, between step one scores and um, uh, the MSPE. We talk about uh, a bunch of theoretical reasons why the scores for whites and Asians are so much higher than the scores of, on those tests than blacks and, uh, and Hispanics. And the default answer for those in the quote-unquote anti-racist community and those who believe that race is the driving factor of every, everything is that the tests are flawed, that they're faulty, that they're biased, and so forth. Um, and you write about the case of the University of Pennsylvania professor of medicine, Stanley Goldfarb. Tell us about that. Well, he, uh, yeah, so, so here's the name of the game for everything in our world today, Bob, disparate impact. That is why we're not enforcing the law, because if we do in a colorblind fashion, it will have a disparate impact on blacks, not because the law is racist, but because blacks have much higher rates of offending and criminal offending. And 
there's not a single objective test of merit, colorblind, standardized, graded by computer. You know, the computer doesn't have no idea who's taking that exam. Uh, every test of academic knowledge also has a disparate impact on blacks, not because the tests are racist, but because there is a real vast academic skills gap. It shows up early in elementary school, uh, in the eighth grade, about 54% of black eighth graders nationwide uh, don't possess even basic mastery of eighth grade math skills. They're below basic, which, and, and basic is defined as partial mastery. So they're, they don't even have partial mastery of math. 54% of all black eighth graders do not have partial mastery of eighth grade math skills. That continues. It does not close. The SATs, which are the standardized tests that are used uh, to help identify students with college potential to get into undergraduate education, there's huge gaps in SAT scores. And there are also huge gaps in the medical school uh, standardized tests, which are you refer to the MCATs, the yeah. Medical College Admission Test. Uh, the Blacks and Hispanics are admitted to medical schools with MCAT scores and GPAs that are so low that they would be automatically disqualifying if presented by a white or an Asian college senior applying to medical schools. But the schools are so desperate to get black and Hispanic faces in their classrooms that they admit black and Hispanic college seniors with these very, very low scores. Well, not surprisingly, having been admitted into academic environments where they're not competitive with their peers, they, those, those racial preference beneficiaries struggle. Uh, they don't learn as much because the teaching is geared toward the average, not towards them. And they do poorly all along. And they do poorly in something called the step one of the medical licensing exam. Uh, that is a test given at the end of the second year of medical school that tests students' knowledge that they've picked up in their classes of basic biological processes of anatomy, of how cells work, how, how cancer works, how disabilities uh, affect the body's functioning, how to read x-rays, a whole host of things. And, and there's a disparity there, and there's also a disparity in uh, a, another test that assesses students' abilities that professors rate them. And these tests are used to help determine who gets into the most competitive residencies. And so two things have happened. We've gotten rid of exams, this, uh, excuse me, of grades of the step one uh, medical licensing test because it has a disparate impact. So we've gone to a pass-fail system so that we can, can we can cover up the uh, the vast academic skills gap. And there was a study done that showed that blacks got worse on this medical professional standards exam that you mentioned, the MPSE. Right. And right. so 
researchers said, oh, well, the reason must be that their professors are biased in, 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 um, in grading them. Well, a professor emeritus of the Pennsylvania Medical School, Stanley Goldfarb, who is a, a kidney specialist and nephrologist, he tweeted out, well, maybe the reason is, is that the black students are just not testing as well. They don't know as much on, on this exam. And his whole school and indeed his whole profession went into just a complete meltdown and accused him of racism, of being toxic. You know, there was just extraordinarily uh, vituperative language and condescending language used against him. The medical school sent out a tweet to all its members saying, I just want to remind you that Goldfarb is no longer an active faculty member. He's emeritus. So you don't have to feel as as unsafe in the medical school as you would be if you thought that Goldfarb was still an active faculty member. And this is just a, a one example of right. the of the stigmatization that happens to anybody who speaks the truth about the academic skills gap. All right, that's part two of my conversation with Heather McDonald. Believe it or not, there is a part three. This was a very, very all-encompassing interview because the issue is so incredibly important for anybody concerned with their health and the practice of medicine that we all rely upon. We'll continue with that after the the, uh, top of the hour news on AM 1420 The Answer. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number three underway now at eight minutes past 11 o'clock. And without further ado, we're going to dive right back into the third part of my interview with Heather McDonald from the City Journal and from the Manhattan Institute, uh, all about her article on the corruption of medicine and the favoring of diversity quotas uh, over merit and over qualifications in medical schools which could and will have a direct impact on your health and the health of everyone. So part three of Heather McDonald right now. Well, this is a, a remarkable thing. I mean, you run the risk. You always do because you take on these very difficult social issues. Uh, and and you, bring, you, come with, you, know, you come with science. You come with statistics. You come with facts. And they don't like that because the facts are going to show what, what Stanley Goldfarb, Goldfarb said. Now, what we have to clarify because this is what they're looking for. No one is suggesting that black uh, students are inferior and are literally 
physically and mentally less capable of achievement than whites. No one is suggesting that. But what we are suggesting is that their performance is much lower, probably more due to what you describe, to their cultural upbringing, to their uh, to their behaviors, and how much of a of a uh, of, of a priority is placed on education at a very young age in many of the black communities. And then, of course, how many of them carry that up to the undergraduate level and beyond? So it's not a matter of ability or, you know, racial differences. It is simply a matter of who's performing better. And Heather, this is where I have to ask you. Uh, you, you run the risk all the time of being canceled for doing and discussing and writing about the things that you do. I have a feeling they're going to want to really bury this research. They're not going to want to hear it on Tucker. They're not going to want to hear these stats because I can already see it. People walking into a doctor, a facility, a clinic, whatever, hospital, they may see minority doctors there and think to themselves, is this the best of the best? Or is this one of the people who got in because of the color of their skin and diversity in medical schools? Am I really going to trust the diagnosis for my dying wife or for whatever the situation might be to this person? I think I might want to wait and see another physician. That's something I can see happening and is why they're going to want to bury anything that you're talking about right now. Right. You're absolutely right, Bob. And to, to return to your first point, what I'm talking about is averages. We're talking about the average performance across a large population. Those right. averages tell you nothing about any individual uh, you know, there are thousands of blacks who just whoop the ass off of white and Asian students. So you, you can't know, uh, you know, absent other information, if you see any individual in a group, uh, what that individual's capacities are. You can make an, an you know, an a average judgment, but you, you need far more to be able to know actually what the skills level are, is. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, if you talk to inner city teachers who are basically mum on this issue, they will tell you about the student behaviors in those inner city classrooms, which are diametrically opposed to learning. The truancy rates are much higher. The classroom insubordination is much higher. It's harder to get students to take their textbooks home to do their homework. Uh, you know, if you compare that to Asian parents that are fanatically monitoring the academic effort made by their by their children and making sure that they study for exams and that they're doing their homework that has an a, a huge effect and it's what's behind this um and but but that's evidenced by the harvard admission scandal they, they, they're taking super over highly qualified Asians and, and rejecting their applications because they don't want an entire campus full of Asians and whites. They're sending them away so that they could put in lesser qualified students who really can't handle Harvard level work. And they don't find that out until they drop out and realize, you know, maybe I should have gone to another school where I could have succeeded and advanced toward a career. Yeah. But, uh, Asians are discriminated against in virtually every selective college now. And, you know, the black student population at Harvard is 14 percent. If 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 Harvard admitted on a colorblind basis and did not give massive preferences to black applicants, but but held them to the same standard as as white and Asian students uh, that are admitted on a competitive basis. And we're not going to get into the whole alumni legacy issue here. Uh, the Harvard black population would be less than 1%. So that shows you how big the preferences are, even at Harvard, who has the, Harvard has the 
pick of the of the crop. They get the best best black students in the entire country, but there's even a, a huge skills gap there. As far as the poisonous effect of racial preferences, you're absolutely yeah. right. It is perfectly rational, not racist, when you know that every institution is practicing vast racial preferences in meritocratic jobs. It is rational, not racist, to wonder about the qualifications of any individual in the preferred group. So if you show up at the ER after that near fatal heart attack and a black doctor walks through the door, he may be the best doctor in your entire city. He may be a Ben Carson. It is possible, it is absolutely possible. But given what we know about the racial preference racket and the imperative that every institution is feeling to pass minority, so-called underrepresented minorities along to put them in positions of power, it is absolutely rational to wonder whether what you are seeing is a racial preference beneficiary and not somebody who has succeeded on his merit. And there was a, a Yale law professor, Stephen Carter, uh, who in the 1990s wrote a book called Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And he wrote about this stigma. He said, I will never know if I am the best for a job or the best black. And there is a difference in many cases between those two categories. And he said that was, that was oppressive to him. And anybody who's honest about racial preferences in those categories should feel the same discomfort. We are talking with Heather McDonald, and we're just about out of time, but I've got to squeeze this, this element in, uh, Heather. Um, Heather, of course, is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. She writes for the City Journal as well in this article about uh, the destruction, essentially, of, um, of medicine uh, due to uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity as opposed to merit. The corruption of medicine is extraordinarily dangerous. I have to ask about the LGBTQ movement. You write, there's a... There's a Beginning of one of your paragraphs, uh, according to the AAMC, newly minted doctors must display knowledge of the intersectionality of a patient's multiple identities and how each identity may present varied and multiple forms of oppression or privilege related to clinical decisions and practice. So I'm, I'm reading that and I see the identity I, I, I identify as, et cetera, the massive trans movement, the non-binary uh, movement, and so on and so forth. Are medical schools going to be doing the same thing? Are they, with, with, with respect to the LGBTQ, are they going to be required or are they going to start steering their, their admission decisions to people based on their trans status so that that can become more diverse and equitable as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no victim category that goes unheeded at this point. All victims are sacred. All victims are preferred, and uh, I am. The medical schools are going to face a big, big issue, and I think they already are as to what they're allowed to teach about the biology of sex differences. Uh, the American Pediatric Association has gone big on trans and gender reassignment surgery. Uh, a lot of pediatric hospitals are also taking up the idea that there's nothing, there's not, this is not a social contagion. It's something very real and parents should be, you know, mm -hmm. kept out of the picture. 
So uh, yeah, this is this is also going to affect uh, what gets taught and learned in in medical schools. Yeah, and and I and I'll just have to say it. Um, I will be branded a bigot, but I do not care if I walk into a doctor's examination room and we see these pictures. I'm not making this up, but if I see a bearded male wearing a dress or 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 you know some sort of female outfit and and wants to treat me. I'm going to walk out. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, it makes me uncomfortable. Being a physician is more than just, again, having the knowledge to diagnose and heal or to do research, to find cures for diseases and so on and so forth. It, it is much more. They have to engender confidence. They have to engender trust uh, with a patient. And if medical schools don't pay attention to that, um, I, I think the quality of medicine, and I don't know how it's doing around the world, but the quality of medical care in the United States is going to plummet to a level that we can't even imagine, and it's going to cost people their lives. They will not be treated by people based on these characteristics and these these incidences, and it's going to lead to a lot of people, I think, not getting medical care at all. Well, Bob, to turn your argument around, though, that that's the argument that is sometimes presented for vast racial preferences in medical school, that black patients want to see black doctors. Uh, and so that should trump uh, any objective standards of, of actual medical knowledge. Uh, an, an oncologist uh, in Philadelphia who works in the inner city, he said one of his female patients once told him, you know, if, if my cancer gets worse, I want to make sure I got me a Jewish, nice, smart Jewish doctor. So, you know, it's a question whether how much value black patients place on seeing a black face with them. I, I would say that uh, it, we, we If everything else was, was equal, there, there would be nothing else, wrong with exactly. that. Exactly. If yeah. everything else was equal, but it's not. And, right. And again, stressing the racism of the system where it does not exist. Doctors are committed to equal treatment and equal care will only increase the suspicion of blacks. You know, you have Oprah Winfrey now with a big special blaming racism on the higher rates of black COVID deaths. No, excuse me. It is, it is explained virtually exclusively by higher rates of obesity. Um, so, you know, this is a very, very poisonous narrative that is not going to save black lives. It's going to cost them. Yeah, that's very well said. And, you know, it's just so unfortunate. Again, if everything goes out, if standards of admission to medical schools and standards of testing or licensure and so on and so forth were equal across the board, and I knew that every doctor was going to have, have, have you know, passed a, a, at a bare minimum level that is very, very commensurate with others. I, if you want to pick and choose your, your doctor by race, go ahead. I think that's fine. But if the skills are not the same because the standards are not the same, now you're really playing a game with your life. And I fear that's going to hit minorities a lot harder because of what's going on here. Heather McDonald, uh, just such brilliant work. Thank you very much for having the courage to do this research, to write this up and to talk to us about it. Keep, uh, keep that work up. We certainly appreciate what you do. Thank you so much, Bob. And thank you for having me on. It's always an honor. Thank you. Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute and City Journal on AM 1420. The answer will be back. Take Bob on the go by downloading the WHK Radio app on the Google Play Store. Always write radio. Two plus two don't equal transgender. It equals four. On The Answer. Ain't but two genders. Two genders. Ain't nothing but men and 
women. <laughs> I never get tired of that. <laughs> uh, 11.25. Always right, Radio AM 1420, The Answer. Thank you, Pastor Mark Robinson. Now, thank you, really, to uh, Heather McDonald. Um, recorded that interview with her via Zoom a couple of uh, nights ago. She was unavailable in the morning. She's got a very, very tight morning schedule out there in California, so she's three hours earlier, obviously. Uh, so... Uh, uh, I really appreciate her coming on. I, I'm going to ask you to, you know, either verify or dispute or refute what Heather and I were talking about. Does the race of your doctor matter? You go into a clinic for the first time, health center, whatever, emergency room, and the person that is going to treat you, diagnose you, uh, help you, heal you. Uh, do you care what they look like at all? I will be honest and tell you that I would not go in based on the very last part of that interview. I would not go in if I walked in and saw a man in a beard wearing a you know woman's outfit underneath the white lab coat. Uh, nope, not doing it. Not doing it. Not comfortable. I have no idea what their qualifications are. That would bother me. Just from a standpoint of if you can't accept science from the standpoint that you know of what men and women are which obviously by your attire you don't accept that science then how can i trust you with medical science to treat me beyond that however i have never walked in and seen an indian doctor a white doctor an asian doctor or a black doctor and thought to myself because we assume that all doctors are just flat-out doctors, and that means the best of the best. The very best and brightest, the very most highly qualified, uh, the people who scored at the highest in their classes, and so on and so forth. These are practicing, attending physicians. I expect them to all be basically equal. That's, that's no joke. Now, I know some people don't feel that way. I have actually talked to people who have said to me they prefer their their doctors to be Asian. If they walk in and have an Asian physician, even if the language is moderately broken and a little bit harder to communicate with, they would rather have an Asian physician because they think they're smarter. And scoring-wise, it's hard to refute that in terms of scores, in terms of grades, in terms of ACTs and SATs and, and MCATs. Scoring-wise, it's it's, you know... And again, we're talking about statistically on an, on an average. That doesn't mean every single Asian physician is smarter than a white physician or smarter than a black physician or smarter than an Indian physician or you know, pick your ethnicity or your demographic. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's, of course, not true to a person, but it may be true on a statistical average. And so, you know, again, I've talked to people like that. But I've never walked in and said, I don't want this person because of their their ethnicity or their race ever but i think that's going to start happening and that's why i brought it brought it up to heather it's going to be terrible but i think what these uh medical colleges are doing right now is going to lead to that it will be an inevitable result when people find out if people find out what the medical schools are doing and accepting less qualified applicants who do poorly when they get there and do even worse when they become residents and yet they're being promoted because they need to have equity and a certain level of inclusion 
Um, if people find that out, they're going to be like, I don't necessarily know if this person is going to be the right person to, to take care of me. I gave this number, or I talked about a number of these numbers with, with, uh, with uh, Heather McDonald. You should hear them again. In 2021, the average score for white applicants on the MCAT was in the 71st percentile, meaning that it was equal or better, equal to or better than 71% of all average scores. The average score for black applicants was in the 35th percentile, a full standard deviation below the average white score. The MCATs have already been redesigned to reduce this gap. A quarter of the questions now focus on social issues and psychology as opposed to medicine and biological science. That's extraordinary. And it's dangerous. And it's going to lead people to not trust their doctors based on what they look like. They need to eliminate all diversity, inclusion, and equity standards in medical schools. They need to eliminate all diversity, inclusion, and equity standards when it comes to the MCATs. We need to make sure that anybody who is wearing a white lab coat and seeing patients in an American medical facility is qualified at the highest level, not brought in so that they can make sure that it looks more inclusive based on skin color. I'm interested in your thoughts. Does this matter to you at all when you go see a, see a doctor? I think it's that important. 216 Always right radio. Right back. hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. All right, we've been packed with lengthy interviews today. We did almost a full hour with Peter Kersenow. We did an hour plus with uh, Heather McDonald. I hope you found value in those interviews. I know I did uh, because they bring so much information to the table. If you missed any or all of those interviews, you can catch them after the show. They'll be posted on our podcast page at always right, or excuse me, at whkradio.com. And then I will have Heather McDonald's interview uh, isolated and available for your uh, listening on my webpage, which is alwaysright.us, alwaysright.us. That'll be up there shortly after the uh, end of the program. Sally is in Bria. Sally, thanks for your patience. You're on the air. Good morning. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. Um, I want a return to performance and merit standards in college admissions and even more importantly in medical school admissions. And I, too, would be upset if a man doctor walked in dressed as a woman. And I also would be irritated if they were irritated um, if I ask them to repeat, if they have a heavy, heavy accent, I need to be able to understand what they're saying. You know, most Those doctors, most doctors with accents that I've noticed totally get it. 
you know, I, I, I've been treated by Indian doctors, and, you know, they have a very thick accent. I've been treated by Asian doctors who have, obviously, a broken English accent in some cases. And I've said, I'm sorry, can you say that again? They know the problem. They know that it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, because they don't speak it fluently and clearly all the time. Many do. Some don't. And most of them get it. They know that you're not being rude. They know you're not being racist or anything else when you say, could you say that? There's a few understand. that don't, though. That don't what? They don't get it. There's a few that the take they're offense? obviously irritated. They, okay. They get up irritated. Yeah. I believe you. Yeah, I believe you. I haven't noticed that very much, if if at all. At least I didn't detect it. Maybe I wasn't really looking for it or whatever. But I believe you, certainly. But I think most of them get it. And, uh, and again, it, for me, I agree with what you just said at the beginning. It's about returning to the standards of not just competency, but excellence. I want the best doctors to be the ones who get in, or best uh, students, I should say, to be the ones to get into medical school. And I want the very best students to get out of there uh, as the ones that are going to treat patients. Um, I, I, I don't want anybody who getting through there and being promoted and passed with standard or, excuse me, with below standard or below um uh, competency standards, rather, simply because we need to crank out more minority doctors. I just think that's terrible. Uh, still there, Sa- Sally? Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Any other thoughts on that, Sally? I I just think that we've gone over the rails there, with, with yeah. whether it's um, jobs, any, any kind of job. It needs to be the best uh, qualified person. I I agree. And, you know, here's and thank you so much for the call, Sally. You know, here's the thing. Um, We've said this just when it comes to generally admission standards. There are schools in North Carolina. I think it's the University of North Carolina, not to mention Harvard and some of the others where it's just admissions, you know, admissions uh, to 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 applicants. And they are literally turning away over and higher qualified Asian students in favor of lower qualified African-American or Latino students specifically for their their diversity and inclusion uh, um, goals, right? That's their agenda. Uh, and that's terrible just on the basis of fairness, kind of like the student loan thing. It's just terrible based on, on fairness. But when we get into the medical school, now it's not just about terrible because of fairness. Now we're talking about terrible because it's going to threaten people's lives people are going to be treated by less than competent doctors because they were promoted through the ranks based on their race or ethnicity or other factor that is dangerous i cannot over you know you could say well other things too i don't want to live i don't want to go to work in a high-rise designed by architects who got through architecture school and training with with less than you know, quality or competent or meritorious work because of their race or their or their ethnicity or their gender or whatever. I don't want people and and I don't want somebody being graduated because they're not good enough, but they fit the criteria. I don't need a, a medical school to say, man, look at our DEI numbers. Look at our diversity numbers. We graduated, you know, in our last class, we graduated, uh, you know, 74% of them were Asians and, and 22% of them were, were white and only, you know, 4% or something were, were African Americans. So that's not enough. We got to graduate more African Americans. So let's, let's promote some of them and get them through so that our numbers go up. Meanwhile, we're putting people who are going to be called doctor, but who aren't deserving of the title if that is indeed the case and that puts people's health in jeopardy read the article by heather mcdonald it's on my webpage right now always writes on the top left side always write.us go to always thank you everyone we'll see you tomorrow 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.